0: All right, welcome back to another episode of the Project Warman podcast with me, Connor Warman. My guest today is Cam Gibson. Cam is someone who I have gotten to know pretty well during my time at CrossFit Roots and someone who I now consider to be a friend. Cam worked at the Census Bureau for many years because of his passion for statistics and populations. That passion still fuels him to this day as he still works on various projects dealing with populations. He also has a passion for baseball analytics and baseball history, where he has written many articles and done a ton of research concerning player performance over time. To put it simply, he makes me question almost daily everything that I thought I knew about baseball. Cam is also a member of our CrossFit Roots Legends class, where he is still kicking it and crushing CrossFit workouts at the young age of 80 years old. What was so cool to me about this conversation and having the opportunity to talk to Cam is the fact that he has lived through so many events and periods of time that I've only read about and heard stories of. So to have the opportunity to pick his brain a little bit and chat was truly special to me. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, Mr. Cam, how's it going today? Well, so far so good, but it's still fairly early. Yeah. Well, we're here in your house. Which reminds me of some of my grandparents' houses, or (laughs) great-grandparents.
1: Well, this house was built in 1935.
0: Okay, that's not that old. We grew up in a lot of houses that were from like the 1800s, so. You did? Yeah. Okay. So, used to it. Yeah. Used to the old, weird stuff, like random steps and little steps to go places, you know? So you are officially the oldest person to ever be on this podcast before. Okay. By a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'll add some uh, balance to the whole. Yeah, there section. we go. We're trying
0: to balance it out, get right. different different perspectives,
1: different views on here. Okay, but um, all right. So, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Oakland, California,
0: like the city of Oakland,
1: in the city of Oakland, which is in the Bay Area, across the Bay from its more famous sister, San Francisco. But Oakland was actually a very nice place to grow up. It's right next to Berkeley. The school? Well, the, the city and the University of California. so Yeah. And it's convenient to... The Bay Area is a great place in terms of a lot of amenities and things to to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you play baseball?
1: I was an avid baseball player, starting with softball as a kid in school. and I uh, We didn't have formal Little League that I had access to, but I played, played softball all the time I could. Like the Sandlot, the movie? Uh, have you seen that? I did not not that formal. We didn't have a. There was something brief briefly, and I forget what it was. It wasn't little league, but a little bit older. There was some kind of a semi organized group that I played with. I think when I was one, you know, basically mm-hmm. a, a summer I guess or spring I guess when I was thirteen. But that wasn't much of anything. So I did uh, go out for baseball in high school, but it wasn't any good. You weren't good. I. I well, I, bl- I blamed it on the fact that I got glasses when I was 15 or so, mm. so I think my vision wasn't as good. But it was very clear to me that I was not going to have a career as a Major League Baseball player, which probably at age 10, like most many boys, that would have been my dream.
0: Most people thought they were going to do that. Right. Or that was a dream. Yeah. And then you went to Stanford.
1: Yeah, yeah I went to, well, actually started college at Dartmouth back in New Hampshire.
0: Yeah, so the other side of the country. Wow. Yeah,
1: so I w- it was really partly to get a – I thought I needed to change a senior and get away yeah. from home. How'd you get there back in the day? Did you ride a horse? Or? <laughs> well, actually, you flew to Boston. Okay. And I'm I honestly don't remember. We're talking like, you know, over 60 years ago. I think it was a nonstop flight probably from San Francisco to Boston. And then I think we got a bus from Boston up, in effect, close to Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. So that took about three hours on the bus, if I remember correctly.
0: And you could smoke on the plane, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Back then, I guess people could. I I was never a smoker. No, never? Never.
0: No. Wasn't
1: it like the thing to do for a long time? Certainly a lot of people did smoke. In my case, my mother smoked very lightly. My father never smoked. Um, I never had any desire to smoke, fortunately. I think once in college at some party or something, I smoked a couple of cigarettes. And mm, there we go. That was, now the truth comes you know, out. And then I decided it, you know, tasted terrible. There's nothing pleasant yeah. about it. Uh uh-uh. I knew already of you know, potential yeah. health risks. So, uh-huh. so fortunately, that was never an issue uh-huh. for me.
0: So you started at Dartmouth. When did you go to Stanford?
1: I went to Dartmouth for a year and a quarter, and after going back for my fall, for the fall quarter of my sophomore year, I decided. Um, to try to transfer back, I Dartmouth had, had a lot of pluses in the sense it was for me in terms of it was a whole different part of the country, was quite isolated, but it was also limiting in some ways. And I thought I'd gotten the benefit I wanted of being more independent on my own. And so I applied to transfer back to Stanford. Unfortunately, I was accepted, so I went back. Uh, so it was the, starting the winter quarter of my sophomore year. That would have been in 1960. 1960. Right, we're talking a long time ago. So.
0: And this was California in the 60s, which yeah, <laughs> was a big drug time.
1: <laughs> well, things started. It was interesting because I finished it at uh, Stanford. I actually started law school here hmm. at Stanford, but I decided I wasn't I wasn't really intrigued with the law, and I think. Part of the issue might have been I, I, uh, I had a roommate who was a, been a fraternity brother, and we lived off campus. But I think that most of the law students lived in a dormitory together, mm. and I think it was a better environment because they kind of lived and talked law, and they got into it. But the other thing was that the, uh, Berkeley was starting a graduate program in demography, and I'd always been interested in population study, and so it was sort of the combination of not being enamored of law school and the fact mm-hmm. that there was a demography program and something I was really interested in.
0: Why demography? Like that's what seems like an odd thing to be interested in,
1: especially um, that young. I was always interested in numbers. I mean, I think part of the appeal of baseball to me actually as a kid was, you know, all the numbers involved. So I would routinely as a kid, Sunday morning back in the day, they uh, all the. Batting averages were in the new, printed in the newspaper, not like now where you have to go on the internet mm-hmm. to get them. Yep. And I loved studying the batting averages, and I, I related in numbers. And the interest in population actually, specifically, I think for Christmas in 1952, I got a set of the World Book Encyclopedia. Okay. From, you know, from Santa Claus. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it included a yearbook for the year 1952. And that yearbook included... Uh, the population counts of all with extensive geographic detail for the whole United States, so I could pour through that and see the population of various cities and towns. Yep, so I had a reputation by the time I was, I don't know, let's see, maybe 12, 13 years old. Yeah. I knew the population of every city in the country over 50,000 in every state, which is an exaggeration, but I did know a lot of them. Yeah, but I just love pouring through the numbers yeah. and looking at the maps and mm. so on.
0: You'll appreciate this. When I was a kid, I used to read the newspaper every morning at the kitchen table, bringing on the school bus with me, mostly just the sports page and the weather and stuff like that. But I would also watch the Cubs games, but when it was time to go to bed, obviously I couldn't watch it anymore, but my parents would let me listen to it on the radio, Yeah. which is a foreign concept now. Yeah, But
1: I know. I figured you'd have an appreciation for that. No, definitely. And I had a little crystal set I could get, yeah. I mean, a, some radio broadcasts as well as on that as well as on the radio, yeah. Yeah, I always think I think it's better to listen to the baseball game sometimes than watch it. Uh, there is something about it it's appealing. I mean, I can still remember uh, the local games in Oakland. Was in the, had a team in the Pacific Coast League, which was very strong, if not the strongest minor league team, minor league baseball. So they had good good teams. And uh, I think when I was six years old, it was probably before I was really into it. But at eight years. The Oakland Oaks won the Pacific Coast League pennant with Casey Stingle as the manager in 1948, and then he went to the Yankees, mm-hmm. where he obviously had a very successful managerial career. But they won the pennant again in 1950 with a Chuck Dressen, who then went on to manage the Dodgers. Oh, wow. But by 1950, I was eight years old, and I was pretty savvy. And, they, and Oakland had a good team. And a lot of players were actually, unlike today, they weren't just young rookies trying to make the majors a lot of them were veterans who were no longer willing or able to compete well in the majors but were still good enough to play in the uh, Hmm. minor leagues but there was also the case there are a number of players who by choice this was before airline travel and before the major leagues were on the west coast there were players who could have played in the majors but preferred to live in california Hmm. you know a lot of advantages of california the baseball season Went up actually to November. Okay. Yeah. So, so I did get to see a lot of good baseball as, yeah. a, as a kid.
0: That's interesting so. though, because that would never happen today. No, you'd never see a player
1: retire and then go play in the minor
0: leagues. Yeah, it just wouldn't happen.
1: No, no. But it, it was also the case that players didn't make that much money, mm-hmm. so they didn't in the majors too. They, yeah, yeah. Was, playing professional, you know, even if they're top major league players, very few of them made, you know, really significant money. They all needed to have employment afterwards. Mm. So a lot of them still went back and played in the minors as long as they could. Yeah. So
0: California in the 60s, was it really as bad as people made it out to be? <laughs> well. <laughs> in terms of drug use and like just stuff yeah. all, stuff like well, that?
1: Well, it's interesting. I went to Stanford. I graduated in 63 and I stayed there another year in law school and then I transferred to Berkeley where an interdepartmental graduate program in demography was starting. So, this was about the start of the the free speech movement, and so on. And, you know, a part of the whole civil rights and anti Vietnam uh, yep. sentiment. Uh, I honestly can't say how extensive drugs were. I mean, mm. I personally was not involved in them, and I wasn't aware of it extensively. I was much more aware of the the strong political movement, particularly mm. against the Vietnam War. I mean that was the thing that was particularly strong in the, in the, uh, as the '60s developed, and I was at Berkeley from 1964 to '69, okay. in, in graduate school.
0: And, and why was that such? Why was there such a big anti-Vietnam movement?
1: Well, it wasn't just Berkeley; it was a lot of other colleges.
0: Mm-hmm. But just as a nation, as a whole, why was that such
1: a big thing? Uh, I would say the Vietnam War was very different from other wars. We, we can think of two wars in particular. One is, let's say, Second World War where the US was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And that was a war to you know, save the world for democracy mm-hmm. and so on, anti-Hitler. I think there was no question in the mind of virtually anyone that, that was we were on the right side of the war. Yep. Um, then there was the Korean War in the early 50s and that was a little more complicated, but here again, I think we were trying to save the world from communism and yep. South Korea was being overrun by China. And we intervened. I think in the long run that worked out, we essentially, South Korea is a separate country. Yep. But come Vietnam, I think it, there was a lot more cynicism uh, about who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. So in Vietnam, the ruling class was basically the, from the French colonial heritage. And these were Vietnamese, who, for the most part, would had, had converted to Catholicism. And they were, it was a very repressive. There was nothing democratic or participatory about the country. And I think there was a real question whether uh, supporting the Vietnamese government against revolution effect was the right thing to do. At that point uh, be, because of the experience of World War II, particularly McCarthyism after World War Two, there was a very strong feeling in the United States about communism as always being totally bad. And we certainly had the case of the Soviet Union indicate all the evils of communism in terms of what people's lives. But it also became Clear that the Vietnamese government had no interest in the welfare of the population. And I don't think, I think for the first time, it, some people, not majority thought, you know, communism isn't, isn't necessarily all bad, mm. or we don't necessarily have the right to impose our views on others. I think what's interesting now, we, we're much more accepting of the fact that the about the whole idea of saving the world for democracy is the sort of a farce in a the sense there's a lot of countries very clearly democracy has no popular support, mm. you know, particularly the Soviet Union and China. And it's not at all clear that the Vietnamese, you know, having overthrown their mm. French based <coughs> colonial government yeah. are worse off. So I think the idea of the for Americans, particularly young Americans, going to fight in a war for that cause, when you're really, a lot of people were more sympathetic of the size. To, totally different from World War II, where there was no question who mm-hmm. the good guys and the bad guys were. Yeah. So, Vietnam, I think, was sort of the first awakening to the fact that things weren't so simple. It wasn't all black and white versus and communism versus democracy and so on. But I think, obviously, a lot of people and were resented the fact they were being sent to fight in a war that they didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And in my case, I was fortunate. I had a student deferment took me mm-hmm. up to age 26. I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So if I'd ever dropped out, I would have been drafted. Mm-hmm. Well, I did not drop out. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but That's like anything, right? It's hard to do something that you don't believe in. Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. And obviously, you know, people are putting their lives on the line. Mm-hmm. I think I had only one high school I was a small high school class, I think 150 graduating class. I think there were one or two who were killed in Vietnam. Hmm. So it, it comes, it, yeah. you know, it comes home.
0: Yeah, and then after you graduated, you went and worked for the Census Bureau. Which... I,
1: I, I was at Berkeley for five years. Uh, I'd done a draft of my dissertation. I was kind of burned out and I was yeah. ready to finish it later. So then I left and took a job at the Census Bureau starting in 1969. I'd actually been there as an intern the summer of 1965, but it was interesting. In '69, leaving in May to go back to the DC area. Uh, you know, been in Berkeley for five years, and it also got kind of tiring. There was, for a period of time there, where it was routine to wear a gas mask when you went on campus, just because tear gas. Well, tear gas was, and so on demonstrations and mm-hmm. controlling demonstrations, and it just got. You know, it was. It was it was tiring I mean, hmm. to be in that environment. <laughs> <Well. coughs> so I remember driving, leaving on a day in May, nineteen sixty-nine, and it was the day of the march on the People's Park in Berkeley. It was another one of these left-wing things where there was some city block that the, you know, a lot of the radical students wanted to yep. take over, and I forget exactly what, but I was ready for a change of scenery.
0: Yeah, but Census Bureau to me sounds almost as Boring and as bad as going to work for the IRS.
1: <laughs> well, again, I love numbers, so I mean, um, to me, it's you know fascinating mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing to do in your life, is in terms of a job, is something you really you have a passion for. Yeah. yeah. So. And what did you like? What exactly do you do there? Well, uh, when I went to the. Census Bureau, I worked in the Population Division, which is one of about 20 divisions of the Census Bureau. <clears throat> it's probably, since pe- people are generally aware of the Census of Population, but the Census Bureau does a lot of other data collection and various surveys on uh, economic um, labor force and other topics. I worked in the Population Division where we worked um, primarily on doing a survey work, The main survey is called the Current Population Survey, taken monthly, and the people know that not so much not by the name, but by the fact that's where the monthly data on the unemployment rate come from. So in that this case, the Census Bureau collects all the data. The data on the labor force are turned over to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Hmm. but a lot of other data are collected on other topics that the Census Bureau then uh, processes and analyzes and, and publishes. In addition, there's the decennial census of population, which is obviously a huge operation that peaks every ten years. Mm-hmm. And this population division is also responsible for doing um, annual population estimates for the United States and states, with some characteristics and further geographic detail, and also for doing population projections. Mm. But again, it's all you gotta you gotta like numbers. Yeah, like, definitely. Like, like like really like numbers. Really like numbers. being into the data.
0: Yeah. Did you travel a lot when you were there? Um,
1: I traveled a little bit, mostly just to to begin with, to to observe. So there were, I think twice I went out to, once out out to California, I forget where the other place, to observe the actual conducting of the survey and to go door to door with the numerator to see how things went when they asked questions and collected data And to get a hands-on feel for the limitations Mm -hmm. of the data. It's interesting because for the most part, particularly certainly in the 50s and early 60s, it was pretty routine. But things have gotten more complicated over the last few decades. There's more resistance to uh, cooperating with government surveys. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's good very complicated issue in terms what's going on. Yeah, I was going to ask you but, why, but. That it's also interesting. I mean, numerators, you know, the simple cases you go to a, the house and it's, a, you know, an average middle class house and everything's straightforward. But it's not always easy to collect data. I do remember one guy who was an enumerator who, did, who uh, was doing the survey, collecting data in San Francisco, and we call the Tenderloin area, essentially Skid Row. Okay, And and this was a survey we had to go back every month, and he actually took a bottle of Ripple wine to give to this one guy every month so the guy would cooperate and answer questions, (laughs) even though it was obvious this guy was not in the labor force and wasn't Uh, looking for a job. Gotcha. So there were a lot of challenges to enumerators to to getting Did you ever get chased away? I never did, but there are certainly cases. I mean, the the classic cases, I think, are in the Appalachia, you know, about census takers being chased away at gunpoint. You know, having, going have to down some holler to. Yeah.
0: So, Why? Just because they don't, well, don't want to cooperate. Don't want to cooperate. Reason? Well, yeah, there's a
1: lot of resistance to various parts of the country at various times. Certainly, a lot of the people in Appalachia get uh, very, a very complicated situation, mm-hmm. but there's a natural hesitancy of the Fed. Yeah. Maybe probably <laughs> for they're making moonshine and they don't want anyone around. That's so, illegal, right? Uh, I think at most places, at, at times it is. I don't know the status now exactly, but just because it's dangerous, or I don't know specifically. I think there mm. may be issues of t- taxes if you sell it. Okay. Um, if you for, for personal use, so during prohibition, I think it was the case people could still uh, make wine for personal use. You just couldn't sell it. Which, yeah, you just missed that one. <laughs> missed the. Pro- Prohibition? Yeah. Well, I miss it by quite a bit, actually. Well, you know, close. you're closer than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that <laughs> ended, what, in 1933. So.
0: It ended in 1933?
1: Yeah. Who thought that was a good idea? Well, the strong movement was from, well, mostly women, ladies' temperance unions, I think, started gathering steam in the 1850s, the same times uh, as the suffragette movement to get women the right to vote. There are a lot of women who... pushed it to alcohol, Mm -hmm. liquor. There was an awful lot of uh, drinking, including on the job. It was a way of life for an awful lot of people. Mm. And it really destroyed a lot of families. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very understandable the concern. It finally peaked prohibition and the women getting the vote both happened around 1920. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think women getting the vote was obviously long overdue. It had been done in some states, but 1920 was the first time at the federal level, uh, prohibition didn't work so well. I mean, there's a lot of people who were not willing to give up drinking. Mm-hmm. A fair number of them, I mean, stereotypically German immigrants who, you know. That's what they knew. They grew up on beer. I mean, yeah. the idea that they couldn't drink beer was ridiculous. Ridiculous. So prohibition never worked very well and it was finally the Roosevelt administration, I think one of the first things they did coming in in 1933 was eliminate prohibition. Which hadn't worked very well. There was an incredible yeah. amount of bootlegging and so on anyway.
0: Yeah, banning anything just seems like not a good idea. Completely well, banning it.
1: <laughs> it's it can be very tricky. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Like the war on drugs.
1: <laughs> Failed. Uh, yeah. Obviously appealing to the same sentiment as prohibition, the war on drugs is a better unrealistic, probably simplistic mm-hmm. approach. I mean we yeah. just say no. Wasn't that Ronald Reagan? That was Nancy, Graham, Nancy in Reagan. Nancy Reagan, yeah, same thing. That's, yeah, I not thought of that, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that people had the willpower and, yeah. uh, and the intelligence to realize the dangers, but you know, look at the opiate crisis of the last few years. I mean, it's, Isn't
0: it the worst it's ever been?
1: Um, you know, I don't know enough about it. I'm, I sus- I suspect there have been more people affected by the opiate, i call it, crisis and the incredible supply and availability in the last 20 years than were affected by over ODing on drugs during the mm. 60s and 70s. I mean it was a different situation The people in the 60s and 70s were a matter of choice choosing to get high for you know personal pleasure and so yep. on. and obviously a lot of them overdid it or you know didn't mm-hmm. this stuff. Opiate was different. People for, were reacting to pain issues and so on, but without, and I think it's clear from what's going on, a lot of the various companies were complicit in not making mm. it clear what the uh, side effects of all this are. So I mean, the number of people affected by opiates, particularly in, I think of Ohio as being a particularly good example of state that got pretty well devastated by, and mm. parts of Appalachia south of Ohio. Yeah but a, bit, a very different situation than yeah. the drug binging of the mm-hmm.
0: 60s. Yeah. And how long did you spend at the Census Bureau besides you decided uh, t- the time to get out?
1: 30, 36 years. <laughs> uh, so basically from 1969 to beginning of 2006. That's when you retired? That's when I retired. When, why'd you do that? Um, I th- was fortunate enough that I was in a situation financially where I felt I could retire. Okay. Um, partly from... You know, good retirement plan from the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think with some, I was fortunate. There, I knew there'd be some family inheritance there that that helped. And I think I was sort of burned out. Okay. Uh, I had. How could you not be? Well, I think I needed. I wanted. I had projects I was interested in doing. Okay. On my own, uh, but you know, thirty six years is a long time in, mm-hmm. in one place. I had the advantage. I worked in different subject area somewhat i was overseas twice in saudi arabia uh first time with my wife trisha and then the second time we had our children mm-hmm. so that was a nice change of scenery i mean i so i think well i did work for one agency for that 36 years i had some variety of location and the subject areas i work in i i think about it compared to a, some jobs uh, and even a school teacher, as much as I admire people who teach school, the idea that they are teaching the same grade basically for the whole career to be as overwhelming. So mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I feel I had, in that sense, quite a bit of variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting in comparing. Um, when I started the Census Bureau, I think most people, many people who started, stayed their <clears throat> government with their full career. I remember 1990s, we did a lot, quite a bit of hiring. And I was I was really surprised how many people left after about two years. And now it's the, even before COVID, there was a lot more people switching around jobs. It was very much less likely now that someone would come out of, say, college, take a job with a government agency or a large company and stay with that company yeah. for a whole career. That's and that's, it,
0: that's especially it. now that's becoming like you're not going to see people at a company for 40 years. No. Right? no people sure. like to hop around. and They hop around and compare, yeah. Is that just because it's easier to find jobs because of like the internet and technology and stuff like that? or
1: That could be part of it. I don't really know a good, ex- a good explanation. Um, or we just can't sit still for very long <laughs> that, as a generation. I don't know. I mean, it really struck me in the 90s how many people left after two years of people I thought were good and mm. did well at the Census Bureau, but they were... I don't honestly have a good answer if they just wanted more variety of experience in their lives. Yeah. Some of my I know came back to the Census Bureau later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know an awful lot of people who came to the Census Bureau about the time I did who stayed there their mm-hmm. whole career. So
0: Yeah, but you've stayed busy. You have, you have various projects you've been working on, some websites and some baseball stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got interested. Um, I'm going to grab another
0: cookie, by the way. Oh, okay. Don't tell Nicole. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Sounds good. Um, go. um, I think in retirement, my two hobbies in terms of things that are, I mean, apart from recreational things, I'm still interested in demographic data, particularly historical demographic data or statistics for the United States. And I've also got very interested in the statistical analysis of baseball. Mm, okay. The thing with baseball, I mean, I was always interested in, well, I liked to play baseball as a kid as we talked about, but yep. I also got into the, the the numbers and I liked studying the statistics. I became particularly interested, starting in the 1980s, there was a breakthrough study called the, published as a hidden game of baseball by Palmer and Thorne, which was the first really sophisticated Statistical analysis of baseball that tried to quantify the performance of players. Mm-hmm. And it used regression analysis, which is a very sophisticated Unfamiliar. technique. T- technique A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> heard of But the, the good news is it would come out with some summary measures overall, whereas the traditional measures like batting average is a very weak measure of um, performance. From the statistical and sophisticated statistical analysis, all of which has been made possible with computers and so on, a big databases, we know now that walks, for example, are much more important than was thought traditionally in terms of evaluating how good a player is. Hmm. Yeah, um, but other things, we there's been some improvements in trying to quantify statistically def- defensive capability, which is more subjective still. But there have been a lot of things done. again, quantify the effect so that you can come up with a reasonable summary measure of a player's performance uh, with just a a single number. Um, That's been elaborated on. uh, I won't go into details on it, but most common measure now is wins above replacement, which unfortunately has some biases in it, but that's a common measure that's used to yep. give player's overall picture. does replacement? What does that, does that mean? Who are you comparing it well, to? Well, it's, it's, that's what's part of what's so arbitrary about it. You're, com, you're comparing a player's performance to the a replacement player would be brought up from the minor leagues, and that's somewhat subjective. But anyway, um, I got interested in baseball history also I, when I was 15 I came back, this is 1957, to the Boy Scout Jamboree in Valley Forge, first time I'd been to the East Coast. And, I, and before and after the Boy Scout trip, I, or after I spent some time with my bachelor uncle who lived in a basement apartment in Georgetown in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Uh, he, he was into genealogy, so I got, did spend some time with him and learned a bit about okay. family history on his side. But one thing I learned about is I had a distant cousin who played Major League Baseball. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't learn it right then. The, what I did learn is his name was um, Burdett Nichols and he, there was a long line of Simon Nichols dating from the 16, late 1600s in Maryland. Uh, Several generations of Simon Nichols. And when I went home, one day looking through my baseball encyclopedia, all the players. There was a Simon Burdett Nichols who played in the major leagues for a few years. Oh wow! So I wrote to my uncle, or else I or else I phoned him. I don't remember then which it was. And yes, I. Did had, you have to spin the
0: phone.
1: I, well, I dial, but you know I don't know long distance of how much we did or if I wrote. Anyway, mm-hmm. he said, "Oh yeah, you had this cousin that played major league baseball." Well, my like, my uncle could have cared less about baseball, but you know I thought he knew I loved baseball. He never bothered to tell me, so I got interested. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't do anything more about it then, but I always thought at some point I'd research and learn about this cousin who played Major League Baseball. Yep. And I, <clears throat> even after I moved, and he was born and, and died in, uh, in Maryland, near D.C. But even when I moved back to the D.C. area in 1969, I didn't pursue it. I don't know if I've told you this story or not, but one I don't night, think so. my wife and I, and some good friends, were sitting playing, playing some bridge. It was a Wednesday night, and I got a phone call from the assistant baseball coach at the University of Maryland. Oh, wow. They were doing a, a project to try to get information on all the uh, students who'd gone to the University of Maryland or its predecessor, Agricultural College, who went on to play in the major leagues. They'd identified 15. Um, i trying to think the most famous one's name will come to me, oh, Charlie Keller, who was a great player with the Yankees in the 30s. Okay. But the first one was Simon Burdett Nichols. Mm. And how how they gotten a hold of me? The guys at Maryland talking among themselves, they'd heard of, there was a Burdett Nichols real estate company in the district. And they called and my uncle had died, but his widow, my aunt, um, talked with them and referred them, of course, to me. So that's, how I got the contact. So that really got me interested. And so i spent a lot of time researching uh, Simon Burdett Nichols life, which I found quite fascinating. He was a he went to the agricultural college. His family was came from a farming family mm-hmm. in Maryland. Um, he played some semi pro ball and then he was spotted by uh, Connie Mack, I think, at some point. Okay. And, and he was brought up to the major leagues and he played four years, two years as a regular. Yeah. Nineteen seven to nineteen eight. He continued to play in the minor leagues after he very tragically got typhoid fever, and died at age 29, leaving mm-hmm. a 18-month-old daughter and a seven-day-old Oof. son who he never saw. So I wrote an article and I, um, which was published in the, in the Journal of the uh, Society for American Baseball Research where I have published a few articles mm-hmm. since. But that got me interested partly in the baseball history. So both mm-hmm. the history in general mm-hmm. and the statistics I've been yep. interested in. I've done a lot of statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. On the demographic mm-hmm. side, I'd had a chance, the last several years, the Census Bureau and sort of backup projects to have compilations of historical data put together for, for reference, um, mm. as reference works, yeah, which, yeah. which were published. But I pursued that. So after I retired, I created a website with the help of a colleague who yeah. did that kind of thing. And so the website is called American Demographic History Chartbook, 1790 to 2010. And has a lot of graphics portraying u.s demographic yep. trends based on the published census data and i continue to work with historical data so
0: and your favorite baseball player is pete rose right <laughs> eddie matthews eddie matthews who Next. statistically going by metrics that you've used is the best baseball player of all time
1: uh, is I think a clear cut. I think it's if you look at it in the aggregate, I think it's it's Babe Ruth number one, and then Barry Bonds number two. Um, obviously, I think the stati- you start with the statistics, but then there's a lot of qualifiers. Yeah. So clearly, Bonds benefited greatly from using steroids. Well, that's not true. No, it's it's all evident. He hasn't denied. He hasn't denied taking all these things. He denied knowing that they were steroids, mm. which is baloney. So whether he. <laughs> Did, well, I, there's books that are written that are yeah. very clear. I mean, people were not willing, avoided testifying in court, and p- went to jail for perjury, so they didn't have to tell the truth about what Barry Bonds oh, wow. did and what he knew. Yeah. So, the Babe Ruth, both because of his it's combination of his batting, but also he was a very Pitching. good pitcher. Yeah. Um, they're the top two. I mean, there's not too many surprises in terms of. I mean, Ty Cobb's way up there. Ted Williams. Henry Aaron, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Pete Rose. No, Pete Rose, though. No. <laughs> Rose was a good player up until about his thirties, and then he was an average player. But he played until he was forty-five. Yeah. And he was a below-average player, just like uh-huh. what's happened with Pools and a number of other players yeah. who extended their career. Yeah. So if Pete Rose had actually stopped playing when he was no longer above-average player, he would not have three thousand hits, much less mm-hmm. four thousand hits. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I admire him for the way he played the game, mm-hmm. but there's not much to say in his favor. <laughs> in terms of his life outside the game, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he he refuses to. He doesn't seem to understand what he did was wrong in terms of mm. betting on the game as a manager. He's had his chances. If he'd apologized, he would have been in the Hall of Fame long ago. Yeah, he's just he doesn't get it. Yeah, so.
0: Well, yeah, it's like how can you apologize? If that's just ignorance, how could you apologize for something you don't think is wrong?
1: Well maybe that's it he, you know, a lot of this is PR, what you say. So the latest thing with Pete Rose, he was did you see this? The Philadelphia, they had a reunion of the nineteen eighty World Series champion in Philadelphia team but which he was on. He was, on, on. Yeah. He, was not, he was sort of a team leader, but he was not a very he was not a good player at that point. He was playing first base and hitting two forty with basically a singles hitter. But was brought up that he had had an affair with a fifteen-year-old. Jesus, <laughs> really? And, yeah, in Philadelphia. And uh, his response was just classic Pete Rose. It was sort of you know, that's past, get over it, or something. He didn't. There's no no contrition, no acknowledgment. Maybe this was wrong. Wow. He just he says the wrong thing. He doesn't get it. Hmm. He just doesn't. Understand Some people it. just don't get it. Some they don't. Well, it's I mean in terms of the whole. You yeah. know, sexual harassment thing. A lot mm. of people don't yeah. don't get it or don't, don't want to
0: get it. Yeah, yeah. don't want to get it. <laughs> so switching gears, let's get into some CrossFit stuff. Okay. So when your daughter, Nicole, started getting into CrossFit and then she eventually decided to open a gym, what did you think about that? What did you think about CrossFit? Well,
1: uh, yeah, well, that was very interesting. Nicole was always a very good athlete. Yeah. And she was... Didn't go to Stanford, though. No. Right. <laughs> no. But she... Uh, you always tell me you're disappointed in that. No, no,
0: I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I give you a hard time about no, that. No, it's so <laughs> hard
1: to get in Stanford now. I wouldn't expect anyone to get in. So uh, Nicole nicole's always a very good athlete. I mean, she played little league baseball. She was the only girl in the league.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yep,
1: that was you know, twelve year old and so on. And then she was a good swimmer. And uh, when we were overseas, oh, she went to the international school in Riyadh. Is it? Her would have been junior high school, and she was a. It became clear then she was a very good athlete, a very good softball player. She played mm-hmm. softball in college. Uh, I'm sorry, in high school. And she was a swimmer. She wasn't a great swimmer, but she's a good swimmer. And so then when she went to college at the University of Delaware, she chose to swimming rather than softball. I, I thought she was probably a stronger softball player, but there was reason she chose swimming. But and then she got into doing many. Uh, marathons and things or okay. many triathlons, triathlons okay. and I don't know that she got became aware of CrossFit before I was aware of it and I'm trying to think of the specific timing she had finished college at the, at the University of Colorado uh, she took I'm trying to think if there was a year in between and then she went to and got a master's in city and regional planning and she had fallen in love with Boulder when the the year she was out here to finish undergraduate so she came back and took a job with the uh, Boulder County Planning Commission this is like 2007 2008 she'd gotten into CrossFit and I'm not sure how long she'd been into it Turned out this job was more, too much of a desk job for her. She wanted something more active. she done a lot of coaching. She'd coached in very high-level swim teams mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, so she quit her job with the Boulder County Planning Commission, like, late 2007, when the economy was tanking, and Dad here was rather concerned since she had a good job with, you know, solid benefits, and she was <laughs> quitting to start her own business with her now husband Eric, yep, and they started the, the CrossFit gym in their garage of their home up in North Boulder, and then they expanded and then had a, a gym just off Pearl Street, south of toward toward Wall around Eighth Street. Yep, and uh, everything has you know, worked out quite well. There's been some challenges, yep, but I I do remember when Trish and I came out and visited, which we did frequently, maybe around. 2011, Nicole competed in the regionals for CrossFit that were down yep. in Castle Rock, mm-hmm. south of Denver. Yep, and she did quite well in her age group for women. She finished sixth, and the top four went on to the nationals. Mm-hmm. So, but I think CrossFit's become a lot more competitive since since then. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: what do you think about all that CrossFit stuff when you first got introduced to it?
1: Uh, I I was positive. I was more concerned about her drop quitting her you know, good job and starting a business, yeah. which is always <laughs> yeah. risky, but fortunately yeah. they worked yeah. hard and it worked out. So uh-huh. I think it's it's great. Yeah. I'm I'm really to be honest, I'm blown away how, how good she is at what she does. Yep. I she I think as a as a businesswoman I think she's got the right kind of combination of personality and knowledge and I think she relates well to people. Mm-hmm. I I think she's done a great job, from what I've seen, of developing camaraderie among the, you know, the members of the gym. Yep. It's interesting to me. Other people I've talked to, like, uh, you know, David Bork, who, yep. when he went to CrossFit, he started in Sanitas, and he said it was just there was nothing there in terms, of, but he came to roots, and there was a camaraderie as a whole different environment. Yep. And I've just I've been really impressed how good a job I think Nicole has done mm-hmm. so I'm obviously biased being her father but yeah uh, just a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> but I just think she's done she's done very well and I think she has a good reputation in yeah you know the in CrossFit nationally and so on as well yeah for so, sure yeah for sure
0: and when did you finally get into CrossFit did you want to uh let's you see you had to <laughs> well <laughs> I might have
1: felt some pressure but <laughs> when I retired uh, I'm trying to think I I did work out for a while at home and I think I went to Gold Gym for a while, but Gold Gym I wasn't very appealing. I think I spent as much time getting there and back as half an hour, which seems like <laughs> wasted time. So I tried working out at it home. Yeah. Uh, which was tough because it's, I think, like a lot of people, I need the motivation of working with a group. Yeah. And so for sure. On. Um, so I started actually with a CrossFit gym in Alexandria, Virginia, named Triton, The woman who. She and her husband own it. She and Nicole became mm-hmm. pretty good friends, do, doing a lot of national CrossFit seminars and so on. So this is Andrea, and I went. They started a, a, a class for seniors, and uh, so I, started, I was in that class for several years. So probably I'm trying to th- don't remember the exact years, but I think might be starting around 2011 or 12. I mean, oh wow, for, that you know, long. I think it was several years that I went. Oh uh, wow! Went to that class. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then you came. You moved out here when? I moved out here in uh, 2020.
0: Yeah. Then you started coming to roots. And then I started coming to and roots. You met me. Yeah. That's
1: right. Yeah. Met yeah. Goddard <laughs> and the rest is history.
0: Um, what do you like about doing CrossFit, and what do you not like about doing CrossFit? Is there anything you don't like? Um,
1: there's nothing I don't like. I mean, I think it takes. Um, a little motivated, shooting to get going in the morning. I, I, I always feel even if I don't feel like going to CrossFit in the morning. When I finish, I felt good it's, that I was there.
0: It's ten thirty. That the morning's over.
1: I know. The morning ends at nine a.m. I know. Well, at this point in my life, I don't. I'm up. I'm always up till midnight. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't set an alarm, and I like i like my leisure in the morning i like to be able to read the paper and yeah. do a couple of puzzles and so on so yeah, yeah. ten thirty is actually and i get some other things done in the morning yeah. phone calls so actually ten thirty is a good time for me to start <laughs> a very civilized hour um but as i say i mean i sometimes i can say no, i don't feel like exercising today but it's it's something i'm very aware of the fact that when i have finished i really glad that i did it mm-hmm. and i do think that's uh, the camaraderie is great i think um I mean, CrossFit in general, I think among the vitality, I like the interplay with you and the people in the group. Yeah. I mean, I think we all get along. Yeah. It might be nice if there were more people who are. Yeah, yeah. A few more people on a regular basis. Yeah. But, for uh, sure. Hopefully that'll develop. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you also hike a lot, right? I did. I did. <laughs> my, my hiking has been limited a bit. I've. Yeah. Um, no. Well, I'll mention I had prostate cancer surgery, yep. which has been a setback in that sense. And the other thing I'll mention, I've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, so I'm not getting, I'm not getting as much sleep or as much quality sleep as I need. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I simply don't have the energy to do ten mile hikes. Mm-hmm. So the hiking I'm doing now is shorter hikes and mm-hmm. less ambitious.
0: So. Yeah, with CrossFit, do you notice a difference in how you feel?
1: Like, do you feel stronger when you're doing it, or? I feel. I don't know if I can say I feel stronger while I'm doing it. I'm, I'm definitely aware of pushing myself on various things, including strength. Yep. Um, I just I feel in general it's important for anyone, particularly you know my age now. I'm now eighty to do as much as I can to keep uh, muscle tone and strength because yep. body atrophies a lot if it's if you don't do those things. So yep. I probably should have been doing. Vigorous exercise, for consistently yeah. for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to walk on the days that I don't don't do CrossFit. I try to walk or get out at least some some bit of time yeah. outside and so on. Yeah. Um, so, but again, it's it's something that's a little bit easy to rationalize not doing. So I do, I really try to push myself to make yeah. sure that I do it. I don't think you have that out. I don't think you could ever leave. Leave CrossFit. So, yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think the family tie here is, like, <laughs> which is good. So, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah gonna, for
0: sure, it gives you another reason to get in there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So another thing, you you're on the you're trivia. You're good at trivia. <laughs> I mean, we played trivia before.
1: Let's, together. Yeah, we did play trivia with at the uh, back country. Back, country. back country, I'm not but, very good, but you're pretty good. Well, I have my strengths. So what? Uh, two things here in Boulder would have been fun. One. I've joined the Boulder Newcomers Club, which is a fantastic organization. And one of the activities that we have with we have, uh, Trivia uh, Monthly, so far it's been done by Zoom because of COVID, actually starting later at the, the session at the end of this month, we're going to meet in person for the first yeah. time. So it's been by Zoom, but it's worked out pretty well. Um, I like playing, and actually now um, there's another fellow and I who actually take turns supplying the questions every month. Mm. so we like to do the research and come up with the questions I think I, I like watching the Jeopardy TV show my problem is I don't have a balanced knowledge I'm, I'm not very good at pop culture and movies TV mm. um, and the, a lot of that I know nothing so I don't like doing trivia as an individual as much as I like being on a, a team. team. Being on a team. And I think my strengths are history and geography and to some extent sports. Yeah. Although the sports is not really balanced throughout all sports. Hmm. But it the it's, it's nice thing is being on a team with people where well, there's sort of more balance mm-hmm. among But we typically our team is older and we're yeah. not strong on the uh, pop So you need
0: a younger side. person
1: who's good. We, we, well, I think the best, everything else being equal, the best thing is to have some balance on age, which we've had on occasion, but not yeah. on a regular basis.
0: And you guys are going what, to what the national
1: championship soon? <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns oh, the, out the final the, four. <laughs> well, the, in addition to the newcomers' club trivia, I, uh, uh, the group of us go to the Raybeck Collective here in Boulder yep. on Tuesday night. There's pub. There's trivia quizzes. A lot of places in Boulder. Yep. and we like the Raybeck. It's it's a little old fashioned. You still submit your Answers on paper. Yeah, that's cool though. I like that better. I do too. I mean, it's still uh, computerized in terms of the scoring and everything. Yep. It has to be. Uh, but we like we like the environment and the questions are pretty well balanced. I mean, they've got a good set of questions. I think it's mm. not just pop culture, which yeah. some places it seems like it is. But our team did pretty well, and, and uh, the trivia there—it's part of team the national organization's team trivia. They do, that's what Raybeck uses. And a group of, of us went representing our team, which is called My Favorite Team, not, mm. not particularly an innovative name. No. Uh, <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, we actually went to a tournament a couple of months ago. We qualified in Denver, and I think there were 27 teams. We came in the ninth and the top 10 get to go on to the next round, mm-hmm. which actually is going to be uh, on Sunday this Sunday? Yeah, this Sunday. In Denver? 7, in Denver. So what this is actually national, but it's all going to be com- on Zoom throughout the, oh, whatever parts of the country that this... You don't go somewhere? We go to Denver. Oh. Can but, spectators go? Uh, not specifically. I mean, you can go to this pub, oh, okay. but it's not as though they have a seating area and so on. Okay. So they don't really set it up to encourage people to go to, to watch.
0: Well, you might have some fans well
1: I, I think you know a couple spouses will be going got yeah. people on our team you said it's at a bar it's a, yeah I forget the name of it' it's perfect I'll be there yeah okay it's a long, it's an old throwback bar I mean it's a big oh, that's place cool. it's kind of yeah. it's kind of neat yeah. um, I we have no expectations about doing well I'm surprised very surprised we even made it mm-hmm. to the next round so this is just for fun mm-hmm. so however a lot of people take this seriously in the the uh, first round there where we, I said we came in ninth the first three teams all won money prizes the first mm-hmm. team I think $1,500 oh wow that's a lot of money so yeah, that's yeah. $250 a piece yeah just for having fun
0: yeah so how are you guys training are you
1: like we studying no hammering we each other with questions we don't train no, no this, is, this is purely just for enjoyment we, uh, have, we uh, have zero expectations yeah so we're not there'll be no disappointment gotcha I'm amazed that we got this far
0: well, sometimes that's the best. Nope no expectations, yeah. no pressure. I know, so. Just go out there and do it. Yep. Yeah. But um so last question. So you've lived a long time. <laughs> a lot longer than me. <laughs> yeah. And there's all knock these go- things. Yeah. Knock knock on what is that yeah. you said? Oh yeah. <laughs> there's all these things that I've only gotten to read about. For you, what's the coolest event or movement or just time period to live through? And be able to say like I lived through that.
1: It could be multiple too. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can't are. think of an easy answer. I mean, obviously, so much has changed in my life, and that's true. Obviously, anyone now who's lived as you know as long a life as I have, so if I think of the '50s as the, sort of the time I grew up, ages eight to eighteen, when mm-hmm. I became aware of the environment, which was a very traditional time in a lot of ways. I mean, the things. Um, this is obviously before computers. I mean big mainframe computers had just come in but this is entirely before the widespread use of computers and obviously personal computers and then after that we have social media and so on so we had none of that but one one interesting a couple interesting things to think about when i started at the census bureau in the summer of 1965 as an intern all the uh, statistical clerks were using these big old mechanical calculators Okay. Friedens or Marchants were the sort of the most popular mm-hmm. i mean these were machines that weighed like 30 pounds it seemed like oh geez and they would do the I don't know how to describe it when you did put in a calculation doing a division the, the the thing would actually rotate and calculate all the way along and make a lot of noise so there were big rooms to the census bureau just full of clerks and there was a constant sort of drone type noise of the, of the noise from all these machines and I remember in the early 70s when the first uh, electronic little electronic calculators came in Texas instruments and others suddenly everything was quiet hmm. so I mean just changes like yeah. that and I think the uh, in the case of the mechanical calculators those went back to the 1880s eighties, some of them earlier, but actually the Census Bureau was in the forefront of developing a lot of these machines mm-hmm. just because of the need to process census data. So I mean that was a big change and then obviously computers became a lot more widespread and certainly were used heavily at the Census Bureau mm-hmm. and then of course with personal computers so that was that was a huge change. Um, I guess another change I'm aware of, I mean it was it already started but the the airline travel, how reasonably priced it became, mm. and how ubiquitous it was throughout the United States, it was easy to fly across the country in you know a few hours. Yeah, that just changed, and international travel became a lot easier. I was a beneficiary in the sense of being able to go to Europe, which I've been
0: yeah. able
1: to do a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself, when it comes to some changes, I'm not very dubious about Mm. whether they're good or bad Uh, social media I mean I I like the internet I like email I think social media I'm not sure that's been an advance although it's obviously Mm. permeated our society Mm -hmm. with with lots of effect made some things better but I think there's been a lot of downsides to social media in terms of a lot of false information that can no way be attributed to its source Mm. Yeah. Um, but also the effect I think of teenagers and so on there's an awful lot that's yep. documentation that it's not all healthy so I I really in a way cherish having grown up in a simpler time in terms of childhood Yep. without social media I feel fortunate even as a parent that my kids grew up in a simpler time although that was just beginning to come in as they got into yep. high school but mm-hmm. they weren't inundated with this early on yep. the way the kids are now so mm-hmm. there's been a lot of changes particularly technological which i think some are good some of which i don't think are good or we're not ready to handle them you yeah. the, the downsides of them
0: what about like go- going to space for the first time um if we actually went there
1: <laughs> no, i'm <Yeah>. just kidding <laughs> yeah. yeah. that was interesting i remember being in uh ireland in the summer of 69 and that was the i guess that was the first moon landing um yeah i mean i i never got particularly interested in the space program i know a lot of trivia questions involve the space program and naming specific astronauts or specific programs and i i can't name all those Mm -hmm. um I mean, I do, I do find the whole thing fascinating and positive, and I certainly know it's not something that I've made a point of studying or, mm-hmm. or learning yep. a lot about. Um, I think, though, the, the, and I, from what I've read, the major changes that changed how people live, uh, actually, through the 1970s, if you think of the previous century, and I've read some accounts of this, we had the development of the railroad, um, the airplane, commercial airplanes so people can travel long distances quickly. In terms of the ease of living, all the appliances by the 1960s, 70s most homes, or certainly many homes, had a lot of the convenience that made life a lot easier and a lot of that was inventions of the previous century. Since the 1970s I don't know that you know, a lot of it's been electronic and it's I'm not sure it's made life a lot easier in terms of basic needs. Um, certainly, we can do a lot more calculations and so on. Yeah. Um, again, there's pluses and minuses of social media. I mean, I love, love having an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of, the basic lifestyle change I think through the 1970s with it when air travel became pretty widespread and, and really very reasonably priced um, that really for an off for the majority of the population I think that's that made life a lot easier that again yeah. with how easy was things were with home appliances and, mm-hmm. and automobiles and so on yeah, yeah. so yeah yeah. It's cool. A lot can happen in 80 years. Oh, I know. Well, and it's, you know, it's, I think it's scary now. I mean, with the, the technological capacity we have, but I'm not sure we have the social structure and the value, you know, in place to handle the downsides of it all. Mm. It's, it's difficult to know how to manage it. I won't get into politics specifically, but let's <laughs> uh- just, just take a take a concept of freedom of speech, Yep, which is basic to us. Yep. It's in the Constitution, so when that concept was developed, how do how do people communicate? They only have two ways: talk or write. Talk or write, and if it was written, it was easy to identify who wrote who wrote it, yep. for the most part, and where it came from. And it also didn't get disseminated instantaneously worldwide. Yep. So now we have a situation with the current technology where, and the internet. Uh, communication can be worldwide, instantaneous, uh, with no attribution of where it's from. That's a much more dangerous situation to deal with and to know mm-hmm. how to control and to deal with. Yeah. So just, just again, technology is way ahead of our ability, I think, as a society to yeah. to cope with it and to know what, mm-hmm. how to deal with it.
0: So is this the beginning of the end? Is that what you're saying? <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. I'll go back. I mean, I think again. This is without getting the politics specifically, because I. It's, I mean, even as early as well. Let's see. I mean, I think the issues, some of the issues with social media that I mentioned, obviously become um, apparent. For been a parent for quite a while yeah. but I think what's scary in the last 10 years is the change in the world politically and the rise of um, dictatorships um, in places that we didn't have before Brazil, Hungary India um, I think I am not nearly as optimistic about the future now as I would have been, say, um, I'm trying to pick up well, a specific year. I guess, I mean, if you think about, think about it historically, I think 1990 was probably a very optimistic time with the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. There was a development of the European Union. I think there was more spread of democracy. And in the last twenty years, in particular the last ten years, there's been a reversal mm. to the point that I'm not nearly so optimistic about the future as I would have would have been
0: mm-hmm.
1: say even ten years ago. Yeah. That's just a personal opinion and yeah. Obviously, a lot of that is reflects, in any case, a person's opinion reflects their life experiences. And I've lived through a lot of times that had their challenges, but in some ways seemed easier, mm. uh, less difficult to deal with. Uh, so it's hard for me to be very optimistic now about the future compared mm. to what things were like, <clears throat> say, even 20 years ago
0: okay well we can't end on that note is there anything you are optimistic about for the future besides people like me leading the way
1: (laughs) Uh, let's see what am i optimistic for about the future oh boy that's not a good sign no well it's hard to do without qualification i mean i think part of the issue is having optimism about the future is having seeing the the common will to deal with problems. So look look at issues like climate change, how difficult it is to mobilize resources to deal with this, which I think yeah. to me is quite clearly a problem. I don't know anyone whose opinion I can respect um, denies that this is a problem now. Yeah. But look, what the, look at what the U.S. did say in the case of World War II. We, with the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, we, we responded as a nation. And there was pretty much uniformity. I mean, there were obviously some outliers, but very few. So we seem to have a, a common purpose. Various government programs, like the Interstate Highway Program, which is basically in the 50s, uh, there was a need for it. Maybe with hindsight now on issues about <laughs> pollution, you may wonder, but it was, I think it was a perfectly logical thing to do. It was done, and there was support, and it was done. I think there's less ability in this country to come together now to deal with major problems mm. than there was back then when I think it was a simpler time. Yeah. No. I'm not saying there's any easy answers. Mm-hmm. No. All right. I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sorry to not end on a real optimistic note. No, that's note, all right. But but thanks, a- Cam. Appreciate you taking the time. Okay, well, you're welcome.